0: audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church, or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. Well, I want to welcome you again, and good morning. What a morning. I, I feel like I sang too much this morning and need to drink more water or something, but that was a... I feel like this morning was for me. Um, thank you for being here. We are going to continue on in our time in Second Peter, and, and as, we, as we get there, Jesus is coming again. Amen? Jesus is going to come again. It's a day we look to. It's a day we know that is coming, and it is also a day that none of us know. There have been hundreds of predictions. There have been hundreds of people and groups of people that have come together and say, ha ha, we got it, here it is, October 7th. Um, This is the day, this is the moment. And um, hundreds of people have gone on a limb, made their predictions, and all of them share one thing in common, is that they've been wrong. They have been wrong. If you want to entertain yourself, please don't do this in the sermon in, as I preach, but um, Google. Google um, something like coming of Christ predictions. Uh, it, is, uh, it is entertaining. It shocked me. I, I Googled it and I just read through um, some of these predictions. One of the first ones uh, was Hippolytus and Irenaeus back in 500 AD. That's a long time ago. And they first claimed on record that Christ was going to return, and they had a date. Uh, they predicted, actually, in, in 500 A.D. And they got to this date because of the dimensions of the uh, of Noah's Ark. So they looked at the dimensions, and they came together with this. It's biblical, at least. The other people, though, it wasn't as much biblical. It was. Um, there's there's record. A lot of people have come together and said, "Look at the stars." Uh, One such is Johannes Stoffler predicted a planetary alignment will lead to the return of Christ on February 20th of 1524. Um, I have a confession. I read about 42 of these predictions. (laughs) I'm not going to read them all to you. Don't worry. Um, I read about 42 of them. We've seen a Pope, Pope Sylvester II, who predicted Christ's return on January 1st of the year. One thousand—that one makes sense. I, I can see that one. I can see that one. We've seen prominent Protestant theologian, uh, just theological giants like John Wesley, founder of the Methodist Church, uh, who predicted that 1836 was the year. We have—you remember Y2K? <laughs> Y2K 2K was crazy. It was turning the year 2000. It was mass hysteria. All of us weren't sure. I, I don't know if many of us believed the world was going to end, but all of us were like, well, it could. <laughs> they could be right about this one. But January 1st of 2000 was a popular date for uh, many predictions that, the, that Jesus was going to come. Uh, one of my favorite modern Predictors is is a man named Ronald uh, Wineland who has predicted Jesus would return September 29th of 2011, May 27th of 2012, May 18th of 2013, and currently he has a date in 2019. Now, I bring all these up not to make fun of anyone or make light of the fact that Jesus is really coming back. The reason I bring these up is because. There is one thing I realized as I was reading through these predictions. It's this for thousands of years, we the church have been looking for Jesus to return. We have been looking for it, we have been longing for it. Men and women who are much smarter than me have sat down and said, you know what, it's gotta be here, and that we tried up, we tried to come up with charts to kind of crack the code of when he's coming. But every attempt, every guess has been misleading, and it's been wrong. And and the reason I bring these up is because I want to ask you what we're all feeling, is what do we do with that? What do we do with that? Do we get discouraged? Do we start to question his return? I mean, where is he? Do we start to ask the same question that Peter warned us would be asked? If you look just a few verses earlier uh, Peter says, Church, there's coming a day, there's coming a time when they are going to ask this where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Where is he? Where is he? I want us to look at 2 Peter 3 this morning, and I want us to talk about the return of Christ. And and get me on two things here before we get into this. Number one is I will not be making any of my own predictions this morning. I will not add. uh, You won't be hearing that from me this morning. Also, I am not going to scoff. We are not here to scoff or to make light of the fact that he is going to return. You won't be hearing that from me either. Instead, what I'd like for us to do is to talk about the return of Christ, to look at the return of Christ, what Peter says about Jesus' return. And he starts with me, we're going to pick up an eight, it says, "Don't overlook, do not overlook the fact, this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day." The Lord is not slow, verse 9, to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. In these two verses, we'll stop here. We find out two very important things about the return of Jesus. We find two very important things in response to the question, where is he? Where, when is he coming? We see two very important things as to why he has not returned yet. So let's look at the first one together. First is we cannot fathom God's perspective of time. We cannot fathom... God's perspective of time. In other words, God's perspective of time is different from ours. And we can't understand it. Peter says that one day with the Lord is as a thousand years. Um, we've used this analogy before. But it's, it's almost as though um, with, our, with our finite perspective, it's almost like we're only seeing like 15 to 20 seconds of a movie. And our infinite God is both the director and fully knowledgeable of that movie from beginning to end, seeing the bigger picture, seeing the ups and downs, knowing the grand narrative that is bigger than what you and I see. Our days, our weeks, our years, our lives, our time on this earth are like fleeting mists. James says they're like a vapor, here and gone. And as we look at time from our finite perspective, it seems like such a long time. Things seem, our lives seem like such a long time, but our God is not like us and he sees eternity and he is not bound the way we are bound. He sees his perspective of time as different from ours. He sees a bigger picture and Peter reminds us we don't see the grand narrative the way he does. We don't even know where we are fully in this story. From our finite perspectives, it seems like it is taking forever, but our God is not like us. He sees the bigger picture and his perspective of time is not like ours. And I want to be very careful about one thing in this text. Um, Peter, like I said, one day with the Lord, this is 1,000 years and a 1,000 years, this is one day. Um, Peter's point is not literal. It's not for you to say, okay, 1,000 years equals one day. That's 365 of my days equals one of his days. That's 876,000 of my hours equals 24 of his hours. Don't go down that rabbit trail, because if we do, we miss the purpose of what Peter gave us this for. Peter's point here is not to provide us a ratio so that we can fully understand the way our God thinks about our time. That is not why Peter gave us this ratio. In fact, it is the opposite. Peter's point was to show you that you cannot understand God's perspective of time. And if we come to this and we think we have this ratio to unlock it, we've missed it because his point here is to point us to the fact that we cannot understand God's perspective of time. We cannot fathom it. So as we think about, as we wait, as we anticipate the return of Jesus, understand that we are doing so with our finite and limited understanding of time. And also understand that our God is not like that. We cannot fathom God's perspective of time. The second thing I want us to see here is that we cannot fathom God's love for mankind. We cannot fathom God's love for mankind. I mean, just consider the magnitude of of verse 9. Consider this. Verse 9 The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient. Toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God, uh, Peter reminds us God is not slow, God is patient. What you are calling slow is really the loving patience of our God, and that is really good news. It is really good news. We look ahead and we ask, where is he? Is he coming back? And part of the answer is, yeah, you don't understand God's perspective of time. But another part of it is, you don't understand God's love for mankind. He waits patiently for us. Now, I I want us to be careful with this second half of this verse as well. Uh, Some have read this and, and taken it to suggest what's called universalism. And that is, every God doesn't want anyone to perish so therefore they will not perish and they're all going to come to know him it's this belief that if God wills all to be saved if he wishes it then it's going to happen because does God never ever not get his will it's a brain teaser for us as we think about this though i want us to be careful to define our terms um Much is written about this, just so you know, about the way the word will is is used when it comes to our God, but on the one hand, this term can reference the perfect and sovereign will of our God. On the one hand, when you see will in the Bible, God's will, it could reference the sovereign and the perfect will of God, and I'll show you some examples. Daniel. Uh, Daniel chapter four verse thirty-five. He does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, "What have you done?" That is God's unchangeable will. Psalm one fifteen three. Our God is in the heavens; He does all that He pleases. Not most, all that he pleases. This is the sovereign will of God. God's sovereign will always happens. There is never anything that happens outside of his sovereign will. He does according to his will. Things happen according to his will. His sovereign will cannot be changed. It cannot be modified. It cannot be avoided. It is sure because he is sovereign. That is God's sovereign will. On the other hand, though, this word can also can also mean something else. What about the times when God doesn't appear to get His will? What about um, does God ever not get His will? Well, if you're referring to a sovereign will, absolutely not. But what another usage for this word is is translated wish or desire. Um, the will of God, as we see in Scripture, can often refer to God's desire, his revealed will. It's often been called his moral will. Not sovereign will of God, always happening, but on this hand, God's moral will. Let me give you an example. 1 John 2.17. First John 2.17 says, The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. What's the implication there? The implication is that there are others who do not do the will of God. Let me give you one more. There's many more, but let me give you one more that's probably the clearest to see here. Exodus 23 7 clearly says, Far be it, um, or keep far from false, uh, false charge, and do not kill the innocent and righteous. It's not God's will that the innocent would be killed, that the righteous would be killed. Yet, church, the gospel itself stands on the fact. that Jesus Christ, the innocent one, was killed. The gospel stands on the contradiction of this text. Because Jesus Christ, the innocent, was sent to die, sent to be killed. It was God's sovereign will that his son would come and be killed for the sins of many. So listen, it is the will of God that no innocent would be killed. And at the same time, it was the will of God that Jesus Christ, the innocent, was killed. How can those be true at the same time? How can that be true? How can they simultaneously be true? Because the word is used in two different ways. So let me clarify it it is the moral, the, the moral will, the desire, the wish of our God that no innocent person is killed. Yet it is the sovereign will of our God, God's plan and purpose from the beginning of time as Ephesians 1 lays out for us to send Jesus to die for sinners as the sinless and the innocent one. This is the difference between God's sovereign will always happening, always coming to pass and God's moral will, his wish, his desire. So having said that, which usage of God's will is used by Peter in our text? Is it that it's God's sovereign will, not willing or wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance? Of course not. Because unfortunately, people do perish. Instead, this is God's moral will, his desire, his wish. I'm grateful for the translators of the ESV, the translation we use, um, how they've translated this verse. Many translations will use the word not willing that any should perish. But the ESV, which by the way is a good and faithful translation of that word. It's the same word. But the ESV tries to differentiate this by using the word wishing. Not wishing that any should perish. God doesn't wish, doesn't desire that any should perish so as a result, we can kind of put all this together. P- Peter, tells us, Peter tells us that it is in his sovereign will to return at the perfect time, and it is his desire that all people repent before that moment. This shows us the love and the patience of our God. We just cannot fathom God's perspective of time. Our finite minds just cannot comprehend it and at the same time we just cannot fathom God's love for mankind. Again, our finite minds just cannot comprehend it. Jesus will return and it's in the perfect timing and plan of the Father. In fact, Peter describes it this way, uh, verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Let me ask, when does a good thief come exactly when you don't expect him to. He doesn't send you a calendar invite. I'm going to be around about 9.30. I'm going to try to steal your car. 9.30. market. He doesn't know. A thief is unannounced. A thief is unexpected. A thief is mysterious. And this mystery defines the return of Jesus. Said Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And this is rich, rich imagery here. When Peter references the heavens and the heavenly bodies, most likely he's referring to the universe, the stars, the planet, the galaxy. All that God has created And then Peter brings it then closer to home when he talks about the earth and he talks about all the works done on it. The point of this imagery is simple. It is all-encompassing. Nothing will escape the judgment of Christ on the day of the Lord when he returns. In this moment, it is the reckoning for all creation. It's the moment when all will be judged perfectly. And it's all-encompassing. The main point here is that everything God has created Heavens and earth, everything, and everything humankind has done and everything humankind has made, all things will be laid bare before Almighty God. And then from that, out of that, God will create a new heaven and a new earth, and that's our hope in Jesus. Jesus will return. Are we ready? Our hope this morning... Our only hope is Jesus Christ and through him that we will be ready. Our hope is that we come to God in repentance and through Christ we understand that there is forgiveness totally of our sins. That through Christ we wait eagerly to see Jesus face to face when he returns. That through Christ we're able to say, even so, Lord, come. But that's not all. Peter's concerned with a little, just a little more than that. He doesn't end here. He's concerned more than just for the then and there. He's concerned also for the here and now. Because listen to this in verse 11. Since these things are thus to be dissolved, in other words, since Jesus is coming, since that all encompassing judgment is coming on all that God's created, all that man's done, here's Peter's question. What kind of people should we be? How do we live in light of Christ's coming? Listen to this. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And listen to verse 14. Therefore, Peter says, because of that, because of this, because that is true, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent. Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Now, I'm going to continue reading. We're going to come back and unpack that. But just as our beloved Paul, brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them. Oh, I love this. There are some things. This is Peter talking about Paul here. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, in which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Uh, first of all, have you ever read something in Romans? you ever read something in 1 Corinthians or Ephesians and thought, wow, what is he saying? I'm confused. I need to sit. Well, you are not alone. You are not alone. Um, Peter says here, you know that guy, Paul, the guy who wrote a good portion of your New Testament? That guy is hard to understand at times. So exhale and, and recognize you're not the only one. You're not alone. It's not only you. And I love also, don't miss this, that Peter here shows this connection with Paul, connects himself to Paul's writings, even calling Paul's writings, don't miss this, even calling them Scripture. That's pretty cool, but that's another day. Let's look at what, what this says here, what Peter is saying. The question is, how do we live in light of Christ's return? What people ought we to be in the waiting? And, and Peter gives two commands here for us in the waiting, First, Peter says, and therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, what does he say? He says, be diligent to be found in, by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Be diligent to be found by him without spot, blemish, and at peace. This is, by the way, this is by no means saying that you're going to be perfect, that you are going to live a perfect life. You've already failed at that. That, that ship has sailed. Um, we have already fallen short of the glory of God. That's, is this an impossible command by Peter? Is this impossible? What does it mean that we do this? Here's what it means. It means that Jesus Christ was the perfect one, the spotless one, the only one without blemish. And through Christ, as we trust Christ, as we respond to the gospel, his perfection is placed on us. in exchange for our sin. And we, through Christ, are spotless, blameless, perfect in the sight of our God. We are children of God. That's the gospel, and that's what it means to be in Christ. But not only that, not only that, for those of us who have been made spotless through Jesus, for those of us who have been made blameless for Jesus, now, Peter says, we are to make Every effort to be like Jesus, to follow after him, to put to death our sin and to strive toward holiness and godliness. And Peter says, be diligent in that. Here's what he's saying. Those who are in Christ, be be diligent to be like Christ until the day you see Christ. I repeat that. For those of us in Christ, be diligent to be like Christ until the day you see Christ. For those who are God's children, be diligent to be godly until the day you see God face to face. For those of us who have been made holy through Jesus, strive to be holy until the day you see the holy one face to face. So Peter asks, how do we live in light of Christ's return? What people ought we to be in the waiting we should be a people striving to be holy because he is holy we should be diligent to grow in our christ likeness until the day we see christ face to face church how are you striving to be holy don't you dare accuse me of legalism because i just laid down that christ made you holy so now be holy all right how are you being holy How are you growing in your holiness and godliness? How are you pursuing, as Peter says, diligently? Pursuing Christlikeness. How are you doing that? How are we growing in our life? I'll say it again. You're not striving to grow in godliness and holiness in order to be accepted by God, in order to earn anything from God. You are striving, church, to grow in holiness and godliness because you are accepted by God. You're striving to be Christ-like because you are in Christ. That's why we strive. Now, um, I brought five books this morning, um, and I mean this. I will give them all away. If if I still have some of these, I'm going to be upset. It would bring me so much joy to give these away. This has been one of the most influential books that I have read in a very long time. Uh, it's one of my. I don't say this a lot. It's one of the must-reads that that I um, that I have. Um, it's called *The Pursuit of Holiness* by Jerry Bridges. He says everything I wish I could have said, but he says it way better. And I want to encourage you to find me and to let me give you one. Let me give you one. It's been absolutely instrumental after the service. A huge blessing because here's what it seeks to do It it seeks to ask the question so, what kind of people ought we be? How do we pursue holiness? How do we diligently pursue godliness? What should that look like? Let me give you one, and if I run out of them, I will order more. They mean it means that much to me, all right? So, I'm not you heard me. So what kind of people ought we to be in waiting for Jesus to return? We should be a people striving to be holy and godly. We should be diligent, as Peter says, to grow in those things, to grow in Christ's likeness until the day he returns and the day we see him face to face. Second, in answering the question Now, what do we do in light of Christ's return? How are we to live? What kind of people ought we to be in the waiting? Peter says this, verse 15, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Read that again. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. In the waiting, we are to know fully and completely that our salvation is in the patience of our God. Psalm 86, 15. It says, But you, O Lord, are a, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and an abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Psalm 103, 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The only reason, church, that we can know the salvation of our God. The only reason you know the salvation of our God, the only reason that we are saved is because our God is a patient God. He is a patient God. I want to say something kind of radical here. I want to challenge the way you view each and every day. Every moment that we wait for Jesus to come back, Every day that passes, every moment that we live our lives waiting for him to return is a moment that declares the patience of our God. Every moment that he waits is a new testimony of his patience to you. I want us to think about this. For anyone here who does not yet know Jesus every moment that jesus tarries in his return every day that passes is a testimony of his great patience and love for you romans 2:4 paul who peter says is hard to understand paul says this where do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience Listen to this. Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Church, each and every day that the sun rises, you have another day before you, and it is a testimony of God's great patience and love for you. And that patience and that kindness has been given to you to lead you to repentance, This morning, church, would you just respond to the gospel? Would you respond to the patience and the goodness of our God? Would we repent together knowing Jesus is going to return? He is coming again. My encouragement for us this morning is how do we live our lives in light of that fact? Let's pray together. Lord, we need your help. We need your help because oftentimes we get so nearsighted. We we can only see what's in front of us. We can only see what's right there. And, And oftentimes we begin to doubt you and doubt the fact that you know better and that your perspective is bigger. We doubt you, Lord. Lord, would you forgive us? And here in this moment, would you just open our eyes not to see things from your perspective, because that's not gonna happen, but would you open our eyes to trust you that you see things from your perspective, that you are good, and that we can trust you. God, we eagerly await the day that you return. But as we read this text... Our hearts are also broken, Lord, for those who do not yet know you. And so for us in this room who know you and we are in you, we pray, we cry out, even so, Lord, come, but our hearts are heavy for those who do not yet know you. And we know that you have put us here for such a time as this. So, Lord, would you help us to live our lives in light of you returning, in light of you sending your Son to return again? Would you help us live our lives in light of that fact? And, Lord, lastly, would you help us to grow in holiness and godliness? You have saved us not by our works, but by faith alone. And now we who have been saved by faith get the joy of growing in you. Lord, would you help us to be diligent in our pursuit of growing in you? Would you use us? If there's sin in our hearts, Lord, would you just, through your spirit, convict? And Lord, as we read, it's your patience, your kindness that leads us, draws us to repentance. Lord, you are patient and you are kind and each and every day is just another reminder of that fact. So Lord, we repent and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.